Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, providing important treatment options for patients living with different types of lung, bladder, ovarian, breast, and blood cancers. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about supportive care for cancer patients with Laura Donnelly. Laura is a clinical social worker in oncology at Smilo Cancer Hospital, and Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology at Yale School of Medicine and director of hematologic malignancies at Smilo. You know, I'm an old music theater guy, and so when I think of social workers, I immediately think of West Side Story uh-huh. and uh, Dear Kindly Social Worker. They say, get, say, go earn some dough, like be a soda jerker, which means like be a schmo. Uh, <laughs> that's the lyrics. Stephen Sondheim wrote that. So that's, I think, many people's experience or fantasy uh about social workers. They work with, you know, difficult youth and people who need you know, assistance. Uh, how does that fit into oncology? Or, of course, I I have totally the wrong stereotype going on. Well, I think that is uh, a stereotype maybe a lot of people have about social work. And um, when I started in the field, uh, it was really only when I started in graduate school that I realized how vast and how broad it is. And so I think, well, my first experience Uh, with social work as an intern was at a hospice agency Mm. in graduate school. And it was a wonderful experience. It was an amazing experience. It was Is that something you sought out or just kind of fell in your lap? It really did fall into my lap. It was a matter of a placement that worked with my schedule and Mm. was close by. Yeah, serendipity, really. Right, right. And I thought, oh, my goodness, am I going to be able to do this? You know, work with people who are dying. Right. And instead, I found it to be actually very life-affirming and very uplifting and um, and really an honor and a privilege, I think, to be allowed into someone's life at the very end of their life hmm. um, when they're really trying to find some peace and acceptance and closure and uh, a lot of things all at once. So that was my first experience, um, a little bit different than you know, social workers certainly do work with um, you know, marginalized and people with very difficult issues. Really important work also. Absolutely, absolutely. And people with cancer sometimes come from those backgrounds. Sure. So it's not that we don't we don't see those those issues. They're a part of our society, they're a part of our world. So um, I think in oncology it's a very collaborative environment and I really love that about it that Every person on the team has a different perspective as to how to care best for that patient. And we all work together and inform each other based on our profession and our background. So um, that's, I think, um, one of the things I enjoy the most about the environment. Hmm. How long have you been an oncology social worker? So uh, for the last six years, I've been in just oncology. I see. And and you focus on a couple areas, particularly uh, disease-wise? Yes. I work on a, an outpatient floor um, at, at the Smilo Cancer Hospital. And the clinics that are on my floor are gastrointestinal cancers, um, neuro-oncology, which is brain tumors primarily, and melanoma. 
I see. So you're you're sort of geographically assigned, and whichever patients are in that area are under your purview. Right. Or catchment. Right. And then um, it's also an infusion area. So sometimes there are patients with other diagnoses, um, head and neck cancer, or um, primarily solid tumor cancers come mm-hmm. to my the floor, the area that I work in. Now, so, How much have you had to learn about the actual diseases? Or is that kind of like just by the way, and it's all about the people and their emotions? And Actually, quite a Quite a bit. I've learned quite a bit about the types of cancers, and um, I actually find that very fascinating. Sure. Even though I'm a social worker and I, I love the psychosocial support and emotional support that we provide, I find the science um, very fascinating and very interesting. And I, I really um, sometimes, I have the opportunity to be in uh, an appointment with a patient when a doctor's talking, and I'm very fascinated by how they describe the disease process and how the treatments work and why certain ones don't work and what the what's the best way to approach the disease and manage it, what the side effects will be. I find all of that very interesting. So I I have acquired quite a bit of knowledge um, over the years working, working in the fields um, with no formal medical training at all. <laughs> well, sure. Uh, and do patients uh, ever rely on you or use you as a sounding board to help sort through what they've heard from the doctor in terms of choices, or is that not really in your in your uh, practice perimeter? Right. They certainly do ask me I, sometimes. I would think so, right? Sometimes, uh, you know, they've been maybe given two different options. And Hard. I, I think, you know, without really, I can't give any medical of advice course. for sure. And I certainly, if it starts to go that way, I certainly refer them back to the physician sure. to, for some clarification, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But I would say what I try to get to is, um, you know, what is your understanding of these treatments and how are they going to impact you and what matters to you? If a treatment's going to have a lot of side effects and a person, it's very important for them to continue working or it's very important for them to get to a a wedding, say, this summer. Um, And these treatments might preclude them from doing that. You know, how how can they weigh that? So really helping them kind of navigate what matters to them the most Mm -hmm. or is really what matters to them most long term survival. So I'm willing to really whatever it um, takes really, uh, you know, do the difficult treatments and be completely, you know, almost incapacitated for a few months to have potentially more, many more years. So it's really, I think, what I work with is what, what matters to a person um, and 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 also getting, it's, it's nice to see them get to a place of feeling at peace with that decision. Whatever it is, you need to feel comfortable with it. You need to be able to go to sleep at night with it, wake up in the morning, feel good about it. You know, what's going to What's going to bring you to that place? You know, it's so in- interesting that, that we're talking about this. Yesterday I was giving a scientific talk about some very bad leukemias, and I was showing some survival statistics for certain subsets that, where there's very little chance of long-term survival. And uh, I mentioned sort of ethical discussions that my wife, who's an economist but thinks a lot about ethics, uh, and I've had over the years about how one approaches – uh, discussing uh, treatment options to healthy patients who don't have a really lot of good choices, you know, how to present 
their choices in a way that they can feel good about making a choice mm-hmm. uh, without taking away hope sure. and and really giving patient autonomy without smothering them in depression. It's really, really tough. I, we got home last night and and uh, my wife Amy says, I don't remember any conversation about that. And I, I told her about an experience I had when I was either a young attending or a fellow in training about such a thing. She didn't remember the conversation, but it changed my life because mm-hmm. she gave me the patient's perspective. I felt that I wasn't giving that patient enough information to make a really informed decision. So, you know, I think it's so important because I think as doctors, we tend to be well, I don't know. We, we want to do our best. We like to do stuff. And I, I'm not sure that we're always able, uh, I think with grace, many of us do, but mm-hmm, I, think it's, mm-hmm. I think it's a challenge for us to really sure. give the no treatment option fair play. We always talk about it. Sure, sure. I think you guys are much better at that. Well, and I think that then speaks to the team environment that right. we are. And I, I've, I've had really the privilege of working with closely with some physicians who you know um, struggle with that and it's it's absolutely you have patients with pancreas cancer for sure. example which is pretty tough sure and um, also on- oncologists sometimes work with patients over a period of years right, right? and um, people are living longer with diagnoses even very difficult diagnoses I think there's 15.5 million cancer survivors in our country right now. Mm-hmm. So it's natural that uh, physicians get to know their patients and they get to, to really care about them and, and know them. And when the time comes where it seems like doing more treatment is, is maybe going to be more harmful to the person, having that discussion can be really, really hard. And I think it's important that physicians have a place to to share that how they're feeling about that. Do you think the physician who has had that long-standing relationship is more likely to be forthright at that time? Do you have any experience with that? Or or is that person at some point so bonded with the patient that, like the patient, he or she starts to delude themselves a little bit? I, I think it can go either way. I, I think it can, and I think it really depends on the physician. Mm-hmm. I think it absolutely does. And um, it, people go into this profession to help and to heal and to cure and to save lives. And and so, um, and that's wonderful. We're, we're so grateful for our physicians that they, they can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think some um, have an easier time of being able, and sometimes that relationship does help. Like, look, I care about this person so much, and it's really not in their best interest. They're, they're not going to have a peaceful death if we continue with treatment. And other physicians just really want to keep going forward. And and I, I can empathize with both with sure. both sides, for sure, for sure. I know when, it's, when my <clears throat> patients are in that kind of position and state, it's very important for me that I be the one who deliver that news. I mm-hmm. I feel uh, really awful if they're hearing it from someone else that just doesn't seem right to me. That's that's just my feeling. It doesn't mean it's easy for me or that I'm happy about it. And I think you know I, I'm probably sometimes a little you know uh, 
blind eye blindered as well. Maybe I should have thought about that a month or two ago. I don't right, know. Right. No, and I, I agree with you 100%. I think sometimes patients a lot of times intuitively know when things are sure. not going well. They intuitively know, um, but they maybe don't want to say anything. Am I, you know, am I jinxing myself? Right. Or if I say it out loud, it'll be true. If I say it out true. loud, it, it may happen, you know, but they intuit. They say, you know, things are really not going I well. I feel like it's I going know well. this is my fourth treatment or my fourth line of treatments. I know the options are running out, but until sometimes until they really hear that and they need to hear it from their doctor, it, it really isn't real or they really can't take the steps that they need to really prepare. Mm-hmm. Well, so. if patients are expressing those kinds of things to you, mm-hmm. um, you know, I assume you ask whether the doctors talk to them about it. Do you kind of push them to ask the doctor? Or do you talk to the doctor on the side and saying, look, you got to, how does that work? (laughs) A little bit of both sometimes. I would would say a little bit of both. Um, It depends. Um, Our our clinic and our practices are very busy and they they move very fast. And so some of it is timing um, as to, you know, do I have a few minutes to to pull a physician aside and, and mention you know, oh, this patient's really wondering about this, this, or this, or this patient's really worried about this. And sometimes the patient might be worried about something when there really are a lot more options, you know. Um, It's amazing to see some patients um, be so, so sick and then see them a few months or a year later when they've stopped treatment and they're so much better. Mm -hmm. Amazing, right? So... Um, so it really can kind of kind of go either way too, but but I do try to facilitate that communication. Yeah, I think it's important and encourage patients to advocate for themselves too. Now, do do all patients have scheduled appointments with you, or do you kind of circulate and pop in? How does that work? So we attempt all of all of us social workers. We attempt to meet every patient. Um, on the first day of treatment, perhaps. And and in my area, it's the first day of treatment because they're typically getting treatment in in the outpatient setting. Um, So we attempt to. Um, There is a screening that's done with every patient at the very first appointment. Mm -hmm. And it's a scale of one to 10. It's called a distress thermometer. It's a scale of one to 10. Patients report on distress in various aspects of their life. Those who score towards the top are really a priority for sure. us to to connect with, um, whether it's by phone or in person, to really help them, um, to help to see how we can help them cope better, how we can relieve that distress, what we can do together as a team, you know, as a social worker in the community. So Yeah, so they get your first attention. Mm-hmm. Great. Mm-hmm. Right now we need to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about supportive care for cancer patients and the help that social workers provide with Laura Donnelly. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, providing important treatment options for women living with advanced ovarian cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about pancreatic cancer, which represents about 3% of all cancers in the U.S. and about 7% of cancer deaths. Clinical trials are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers for the treatment of advanced stage and metastatic pancreatic cancer using chemotherapy and other novel therapies. Fulfirinox, a combination of five different chemotherapies, is the latest advance in the treatment of metastatic pancreatic cancer, and research continues at centers around the world looking into targeted therapies and a recently discovered marker, HENT1. 
This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. I'm joined tonight by my guest, Laura Donnelly. We've been discussing supportive care for cancer patients, and in particular, the role that social workers play. Laura, I'd like to come back to one of the very first things you mentioned, which was during this internship you had during your social work training uh, at a hospice, and you said you found the work life-affirming. Could you elaborate on that? I think that's just a fascinating comment. Well, I think when people are approaching their own mortality and also the family members that are around them, I think it leads a person to really focus on what is most meaningful in their life and what has been most meaningful. And perhaps sometimes there's regret or um, perhaps somebody felt like they spent a lot of their life maybe doing a job they didn't really like or Mm -hmm. didn't really love and that maybe some of that time wasn't as meaningful but what can I do now to sort of make every day more meaningful and incorporate more of that into my life so I think it um, and I think it's it's a time in which a person really reflects and reviews their whole life and um the adversity and the difficulty uh, and what the value was in those difficult experiences and the joy and the good moments um, that they've maybe experienced in a life. So it's it's like the culmination of a, of a really good book or something. And right. <laughs> so that's um, – and I think, too, to see people um, make progress and go – and grow and change um, is also just very rewarding. Mm-hmm. Is there any kind of uh, the word that comes to my mind is curriculum or process, uh, kind of formal process for helping people uh, negotiate that kind of existential review and abyss, or is this just something you get skilled at? <laughs> it's really interesting to me. Uh huh. Um. That's a good question. Some somebody must write about that kind of stuff. I would, right. I would think. Yeah. Well, I have to say, uh, I think it was when I lo- when I look back on my training, I didn't learn that those skills specifically in the classroom, but more from the people, my mentors, and my people who in the field it. who were doing it. And there were there were many educational opportunities just in that hospice year and and ongoing now in my current career for continued education, for conferences, for experts on in the field. And so I always took advantage of those opportunities to learn more um, because it would help me understand my patients better and it would help me help them more. So I would say not really a curriculum. It really yeah. was like learning from those who were doing it. It would seem that it would be nice for patients if they had even a workbook, you know, <laughs> right? A guy, right. A, you know, we have what to expect when you're expecting, but, <laughs> you know, right. really like how to putting your life in order or something. I don't know. It just seems like there's so much opportunity because probably not everybody has access to thoughtful people like you. And and your time is limited, I assume. Right, right. Um, Again, a really really good point. And and I I don't think that there is a manual out there like that. Here's your future. You can be (laughs) even more famous. Um, Right, right. And, And 
some people are a little more resourceful and a little bit more proactive in their uh, own initiatives to sure. seek out that um, those kinds of things, and and other people. Other people aren't. Um, it doesn't mean that they don't get there. You know, there are there are other people that help them, or um, they come to a place of acceptance without a lot of that. You know, that's you know, interesting. You know, so when my mom was dying of pancreas cancer, she was a woman who was never going to discuss the D word, mm-hmm. and it was. Uh, I think, uh, you know, my sibs and I have regret about not being able to really discuss. Uh, the anxiety she must have had and and stuff. But that was her choice, and we respected it. My mother-in-law uh, was a little more open, and uh, she kind of discussed some kind of existential thoughts she had had with her daughters, not deeply, again. And then I, then I have some patients who really, uh, you know, uh, just exhibit, you know, and I call it grace, and I don't mean it really in a religious sense, but I mean really an, an amazing sense of, peace and, um, I don't know, insight or acceptance that I'm not sure I'd ever be able to have. I mean, it's really fascinating. I really so respect and in some ways envy those patients, and I'd like to bottle it (laughs) and learn from them. I try to, but it's, I don't know, it's so different from patient to patient. Absolutely. And I think it's very important, like even in your own family, um, respecting where the person is at. You know, I, I try to think of it as a storybook, and they really get to write that last chapter. Right. And if that last chapter is to continue to protect family members by not talking about it, that's okay. You I, know, I, and I, I think as a social worker, a lot of times it's our job to maybe open the door mm-hmm. for some discussion. And if, you know, that door gets shut quickly, then... That they're telling you something, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, I often find that um, our medical staff, particularly in the hospital, not just medical, I mean the entire mm-hmm. health staff, patient care staff, uh, is very focused on making sure people have a quote-unquote good death, Mm -hmm. what's good death in our eyes, and that, you know, we address resuscitation issues immediately, like the most important thing, like God forbid somebody's put on a ventilator who doesn't Mm -hmm. want it, and of course we want to respect those wishes, but I I think that that many of us can't step back and say, first of all, we don't know how we'd feel in their shoes. Right. And we're not in their shoes and we're not right. that person. Right. So, right. you know, we have to watch out for our own hubris about it, I think. Sure. And I think as social workers, we have to be really aware of how we're feeling and really not not project that onto the person, um, but to be aware of it because we are going to feel that way. If, if a patient says, oh, I, I want everything, you know, you might have a certain reaction to that. Um, so where, so do you, <laughs> where do you process those feelings, frustration or? Um, I think it's really important to uh, collaborate and connect with other social workers who are doing the same kind of work. Um, so we have opportunities um, together as a team to do that and um, to really get some input from our colleagues that's a little bit more objective to help us with that. Nice. So you feel well supported that way. Yes, definitely. You don't want to have to be home stewing about some bad interaction or some patient you're really unhappy about, I would think. Right, right. No, we as social workers, a part of our um, a part of our job is our own self-care. I would think so. Yeah. Right. Right. And um, so we really try to um, I, I learn from my patients a lot, too, especially those at end of life. How do I make my days more meaningful? Right. So. Um, 
I think it's it's something that has to be intentional. Mm-hmm. You have to really carve out time to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but that getting that energy and that reinvigoration helps me be able to give more mm-hmm. to my patients the next day. What happens to patients who uh, either the patients or family members where, you know, maybe their grief reactions or their whatever is sort of assuming more of a, I don't know, uh, difficult, really sort of difficult problem that might either need some kind of more intensive therapy or mm-hmm. medication. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Where do, What happens to those patients? How do we get them support? Right. So we collaborate with a lot of partners in the community, too. We collaborate with mental health practitioners who are in private practice, with uh, cancer-specific organizations, with psychiatrists at times. Um, so we really, when we do an assessment with a person, we really uh, look at their entire social context and their history and maybe some issues that were there prior to diagnosis um, and really collaborate with and connect them with people, encourage them to, to get connected, um, talk about the ways that they can cope with this, but also giving a space to allow some of that. For example, um, some people, I think, can go through a period of time of being very angry. Right. And um, that anger can certainly come out towards the medical professionals, you know, when they present in clinic. Um, And I think it can sometimes the first reaction can be to take that personally, you know, and well, I'm trying to help this person and they don't appreciate it. But I think it's taking a step back and realizing this is a part of the process. This is a part of their grief process. And I can be available and I can listen to that and I can validate that. And then I can help them try to move beyond that. And, and say, you know, I, I can see you're in a lot of distress. How, how can we help you with this? These are some things that have helped other people in the past because, uh, you know, I want you to feel good every day, you know, even living with this difficult illness or your family member's difficult illness. How can, what can we do to make this better? So I think, and I say to patients too, how you're going to get through this is not going to be one thing. Mm-hmm. It is going to be a variety of things, you know, a variety of uh, coping skills that you already have that you're going to acquire. It's going to be uh, support from your family, from perhaps a faith community, from the community you live in. It is going to be a multitude of things. It's really not going to just be counseling or just a support group. It's really going to be a lot of things. I, I, I think that's what I see. And the more things you can avail yourself to... I think the better you're going to feel. Mm-hmm. And what about the physician, the physician who's being attacked? <laughs> Do you, are you available for I her am. as well? I absolutely am. Um, um, I'm, I'm available to talk about it. I'm available to problem solve with them. How, right. how can we mitigate this situation in the future? You know, is there a way to kind of prepare the patient ahead of time? Are they angry about a wait time or are they just angry about the news they got or... Uh, did the plan have to change for some reason, perhaps a really good reason, and they weren't expecting it, and mm-hmm. it, that set off a reaction? How can we be proactive and plan for that ahead of time, I think? Um, or sometimes it's really just giving a physician an opportunity to say, gosh, that was really awful. I didn't know what I could do. They were so angry. Um and, and just kind of giving a moment to sort of debrief before you move on to the next Recoup, patient. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. You know, I, in, I used to work in Maryland, and in Maryland, the social workers 
I think had a lot more. Um, I'm not sure what the word is, you know, sort of case responsibilities for helping with paperwork and getting, Mm -hmm. you know, durable supplies and beds and things like that. It seems like that's that that's not so much the case in Connecticut, at least here uh, in our medical center, that there are other professionals who kind of deal with a lot of that more practical stuff. Is is that am I right about that? I would say that that's that's the case at at Smilo, um, there is a care management department that does a lot of those uh, practical things, setting up visiting nurses, getting durable medical equipment, things like that. We as social workers, though, we do provide a lot of community resources. So that is a part of our, our job, too. There is sometimes some paperwork involved and, and forms and things like that. But I would say our top priority is really helping patients cope with the illness. Laura Donnelly is a clinical social worker in oncology at Smilo Cancer Hospital. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.